Hey everyone, before we get started this week, we just want to give a quick listener shout out to Dan. Dan. Dan wrote in to ask if we had ever read any works by E. Nesbitt, and it was an incredible email to receive because at first I was like, I have no idea who that is. Sorry, <laughs> At first Dan. Grace was like, this is just made up malarkey. <laughs> But after a quick Googling, I had one of those crazy memory floods that is the kind you only see in movies, basically, when there's a character with amnesia and then they touch a little pink teddy bear from their childhood. And or or like it's in Breath of the Wild when you find the shiny patch and then yes. you... Remember. The shiny patch, yeah. <laughs> you remember when Zelda was depressed and sad, which is pretty much all of them. Okay, now we're <laughs> plot spoilers for Breath of the Wild. Oh, yes, yeah, spoiler alert if you haven't played Breath of the Wild yet. Okay, anyway, I loved Enesbit as a kid, and we are actually going to cover the Enchanted Castle in a future episode. Yes. And that wouldn't be without Dan, without Dan's email. So, thank you, Dan. Good job, Dan. If you'd like to let us know any books that you loved as a kid that you feel nostalgic for and that you are curious about our thoughts on please get in touch you can email us directly at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website dragonbabiespodcast.com and we've got a little contact form on there let us know what you think another way that you can contribute to our you know attempted work of art here is to leave us a review on apple podcasts all you need to do to do so is if you're subscribed just right click the dragon babies artwork on your itunes and it will give you a link to go to the show page and you can leave a review right there we'd love to hear from you if we get more reviews we can reach more listeners and expand the podcast create more stuff for you guys and read more books which is why we're all here Leaving a review is good for me and you. And that's all we have to say about that. Thanks so much. Here's the episode. Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies! This week, The Tombs of Atuan by Ursula K. Le Guin. Grace looked up pronunciation, I think. No, I didn't. All right! Fast <laughs> and loose, baby. How we usually do it. We'll apologize after. Yeah, or maybe before, as <laughs> we've been doing lately. I like to put it in the beginning of the episodes, but you guys can't have even a single moment of being like, why are these idiots doing this again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know how to pronounce Ursula K. Le Guin's name for certain. Um, she is one of the, I would say, more renowned authors that we've covered. Um, so I think her name just comes up more often in literary conversations, which I'm obviously having constantly. You I know bring me up, my, my salons. <laughs> I bring up her name at every party I go to. Quickly, a little bit of background. This is the second book in the Earthsea series. It was published in 1971, and it concerns a different protagonist than the first book, although he shows up midway through. So let's just do a quick plot spoiler um, first. I'll read the back of the book to see what the publisher had to say about the tombs of Etuan. And I guess to be consistent, we usually describe the cover first. There is like a the really pretty watercolor of Tenar and 
started um, making their way through the tombs, through the under tomb. Um, and Tanar has some really lovely flowing cloakage going, and Ged's got his adventure outfit on, and his staff is glowing at the end, providing some light. And there's that Newberry medal that we talked about, um, I don't remember which episode, but recently we discussed the lore of the Newberry Honor Medal, um, and how it helped us unlock new worlds. <coughs> When young Tanar is chosen as high priestess to the ancient and nameless powers of the earth, everything is taken away. Home, family, possessions, even her name. For she is now Arha, the Eaten One, guardian of the ominous tombs of Atuan. Hey, that's the name of the book. While she is learning learning her way through the dark labyrinth, a young wizard, Ged, comes to steal the tombs' greatest hidden treasure, the Ring of Erethakbe. But Ged also brings with him the light of magic, and together he and Tanar escape from the darkness that has become her domain. With billions of copies sold, Ursula Gayla Guin's Ursi Cycle is at a treasured place on the shelves of fantasy lovers everywhere. Complex, innovative, and deeply moral, this quintessential fantasy sequence has been compared with the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, and mm. C.S. Lewis, and has helped make Le Guin one of the most distinguished fantasy and science fiction writers of all time. She has won countless awards for her work, including the Nebula, Hugo, National Book, and Newbery Honor Awards, and lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh. Our side of the globe. And that's that. What do you think about that summary? I like it. That's a good summary. Yeah. I actually went out of my way not to read it before I read this book. Oh, interesting tactic. I read Wizard of Earthsea a long time ago, actually, in high school. Um, And I did reread the wiki summary for Wizard of Earthsea before I read this book. But then I was really enjoying just kind of seeing what was going to happen in this book without having like a blurb on the back that was going to say, because it really does say what happens. I know. Why do they mention Ged? Together, he and Tanar escape from the darkness that has become her domain. Like, that's the entire plot of the book. And but I just, I don't understand why backs of the book have, they just tell you everything that happens. Like, what's the fun in that? I think something we've learned in these patterns we've discovered, just, you know, in the first, what, 15 odd episodes we've done so far, um, is that we prefer the ones that just have an excerpt from the book on the back yeah, from those an exciting are great. moment. Um, and I think that does more to show you the writing style and the expectations that you can have going into it than anything else. Um, backs of books are just so aimed at reaching larger audiences. And like, that's fine. I get it. And I know it's a marketing I, thing. I work in marketing. Like, I, I know what it is to try to get larger groups of people interested in whatever your product is. Um, but then to suddenly cut from the summary into the here's why Le Guin is a badass little section it just felt kind of shoehorned in and yeah yes indeed um would you like to spoil the plot Matt's Natalie lads what the back hasn't spoiled (laughs) what's left so why even do this episode (laughs) so I'm gonna call her we'll probably switch back before Mm-hmm. between saying Tanar and Arha, but the eaten one. Yeah. When she, she's like five when she's taken away from her family, um, because the way that they choose the next priestess is they look for, um, a girl baby born during the same time when the old priestess died. Yes. Um, and that's like, 
they say she's been reincarnated. So they tell the family, we're going to come back and take that baby when she is five. And then they do and take her to the temple, which is this just, it's basically a convent um, where they're like shut away from the world and they just do convent things besides the um, mostly fairly mundane tasks Mm -hmm. of worship. And she has a couple of teachers who are, one of whom is a priestess. No, I think they're both priestesses of the God King, um, who is the current ruler. So it's been kind of combined that his temple is there too with the temple of the Nameless Ones, which is who Arha serves. That's who Mm -hmm. she's the priestess of. And she's technically the highest up person there, even though she's brought there. She's just not ready to come into her full office Mm -hmm. yet. Um, And there's different levels of belief among all of the people there in the Nameless Ones and in the God King, although the God King is much more present because he's like, I think of him as like a pharaoh. Yeah. Like that's what his kind of mythos is um, because he's just, you know, I mean, it's the same concept. Yeah, he's part of a lineage of rulers who are originally conquerors. And, you and know, he believed that they were chosen by the gods to mm-hmm. serve. Yes. Um, and so the less savory part of Arha's duties of worship are she needs to sacrifice um, prisoners that are sent by the king to the nameless ones. Um, so she only does it once with a group of three. Um, and she has them starved to death in like down in the under tomb which is where like she keeps calling it her domain in the under tomb there's a labyrinth and it it's just like a big maze and it goes really deep under the earth and there's forgotten treasures under there and everything um it's underneath the titular tombs of Etwan. the yeah and the temple complex um and then one day Part of the deal is there's not allowed to be light through most of the um, the undertomb. And one day she goes in there and Ged is in there with his light. He's a wizard. He's a different race of people. Um, there's kind of two main races in this world. There's the... At least in this book. Yeah. Um, Arha is... Uh, or Tanarsh and her people, they are... They are white, and I kind of thought of them as, like, Nordic, only because on our Earth, you know, what Mm -hmm. changes people's skin tone over time is the climate where they live, if they need to have melanin in their skin or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Ged's people are the wizards, and they are definitely the more civilized people, Mm -hmm. um, and they are black uh, at least darker skinned. I mean, it's hard it, using it our own racial them. terms yeah. to describe these different groups because of people. they don't have the same connotations at all. Yeah, they. But yeah, I mean, his skin gets described as dark uh, mm-hmm. brown, copper brown. But I mean, and his depiction on the front is much lighter on this book than I imagined him. Yeah. Um, but that may you can also tell that they're trying to paint him as more of just like spends a lot of time in the sun. Yeah, he looks like a really tan white dude. He's ethnically not right. Caucasian. Yeah, um, which is really frustrating which is because really it's annoying. so revolutionary it's that these books do feature a protagonist of color. Yeah, and also especially at that time in the science fiction and fantasy landscape, like it was just huge. And it's also just really nice that they chose that the author she chose to have the wizards and the more educated and worldly people yeah. be the darker skinned ones. And then the white people are kind of more of a like savage. Mm-hmm. They don't read. 
they don't teach them their people to read. They think of that as like an evil magic too. And also I think something to remember is that we have the whole book told to us through Arha's, mm-hmm. Tanara's perspective. Yeah. Um, and women in this society live in very clearly defined roles that are um, below male roles uh, mm-hmm. pretty much no matter what. And then beyond that, we only know what life is like within essentially the religious this, cult that they yeah, have this tiny um, very specific culture and yeah i'm sorry i won't i don't want to usurp um, the summary continue well so anyways she sees ged down in there um one day and she traps him in there uh and he's in the labyrinth in in the labyrinth yeah in the dark and she's shocked because he's brought light there so she sees the inside of the glittering cavern for the first time she traps him in there and really quickly I would say this is the beginning of her crisis of faith because she's, she has to grapple with him and like everything, all his worldliness and the things that he reveals. He does believe in her gods, but he kind of reveals to her or wakes her up to the fact that she's just serving like an evil force. Um, And like the concept of religion versus the actual spirits themselves, like the human worship of a spirit versus a spirit's own Mm -hmm. force. Yes. Um, And it turns out he's there to find the other half of the treasure that he carries. It's a broken ring um, and it's a relic of a very, very famous wizard from the past and half is in the bowels in the treasure uh, chamber of this place, um, the Undertomb. Arha essentially um, breaks with this tradition that's been kept for centuries and centuries. Um, She, one of her teachers is evil. The other one passed away um, before that one. Um, And she lies to her, tells her that she killed Ged because... Kossel. Kossel really wanted her to kill Ged um, and get it over with, but Arha lies to her and then ends up hiding with Ged in the treasure room, and Ged uses his magic to help her escape with him because he really needs to bring the United Relic out of this place and bring it back to his city and civilization because it's supposed to bring peace. So it's an incredibly noble cause mm-hmm. um, that she is helping him serve. And she continues to really struggle a lot within herself throughout this. Uh, but to finish this long-winded summary, um, when they escape from the tomb, it becomes apparent that Ged was holding back a massive earthquake. The entire complex, the labyrinth, the undertomb, swallows up itself, swallows up the the Nameless One's temple, too. Yeah. And just everything falls into a rent in the earth. Uh, Ged and Tanar see it happen. And then Ged and Tanar have a journey towards uh, Ged's home. And Tanar comes with him and they kind of talk about and ultimately decide what she's going to do with her future, at least in the uh, shorter term. Nice. The end. So just to start the discussion, I want to quickly comment on my adult perceptions of the book versus the way I viewed it as a child, because we've been kind of skipping explicitly going over that lately. And that's Mm -hmm. why we started this podcast. I think part of it is because only one of us has read each of the recent Mm -hmm. books that we've done. Um, But you have read A Wizard of Earthsea when you were young. That's awesome. I can talk about that. Um, I want to also say I have read all of the Earthsea series, but this is the only one I've reread in about 
20 years probably. So I'm just not really going to comment on the other plot points because I'll probably get things wrong. So let's just approach this as an isolated entity. I, as a child, thought this book was really cool. Um, Yeah, this book is awesome. It's very... I would have loved it as a kid because it's so brutal. Yeah, it's very dramatic and dark. um, And it's reminiscent of, I think, a lot of different... uh, Greek myths um, of like these tales that you've been hearing throughout your life. But for one thing, it features a girl as the main character and she's also young. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spend so much time with her just living out her life before the actual conflict. It's really interesting to read it now and think about what a strange plot structure this book has. Yes, it's um, very weird. It's weird, but great. I, I mean, really enjoyed it, but I, I was thinking really about that while I was reading it too. It's a different plot structure. In this really crazy way, it almost exactly mirrors The Handmaid's Tale, which was actually written Never read that. after this. And Margaret Atwood cites Ursula K. Le Guin as one of her like major influences. Um, and the two of them are friends, and they've done like panels together where they argue about what science fiction versus speculative fiction means. Like, it's great. The, their relationship is amazing. That is awesome. I'm forever going to be bitter that I missed this talk they held in Portland seven years ago. I thought you were going to say that you're not friends with them, too. They would never be my friend. <laughs> Grace, so self-deprecating. No, just... You're awesome. They're both geniuses. <laughs> I'm not. It's don't okay. Be, don't be down on it's yourself. It's okay. I show my support in ways like this, you know? Um, like being adjacent to these authors, even just by like publishing a funny little podcast and putting it on the internet makes me feel like I'm at least doing something to celebrate their work. This is getting really meta. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is the Grace episode. Grace's hopes and wishes. Grace's self-doubt. Anyway, everyone, please write in and tell Grace that she is great. She could use it. So after the first half of the book, which is just spent in pretty mundane daily tasks, but then also Tanar exploring the labyrinth and essentially exploring herself. I mean, the labyrinth is a metaphor for her own like inner thoughts and wishes and desires because they've all been so repressed yeah. by the upbringing that she's had. Um, and she is barely allowed to socialize with the other girls. Um, Really, the only person she spends much time with is Minar, who is her caretaker. Um, I think he's a slave. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying his role, his relationship to her. Oh, yeah. He's like Um, her, yeah, like her father figure. And it's really just Tanar feeling cold, lonely, um, but also developing a haughty pride because mm-hmm. she's told from the age of five right. that she is the Special. eaten one. She is the closest to the nameless ones, to the gods, um, and that she has this underground domain. It's super goth. Like, it's really kind of amazing. It's very goth. Um, just how, like, embracing the forces of darkness the entire religion is. Um, and one of the reasons I said it mirrors The Handmaid's Tale almost precisely is that um, half about half of that book is mundane daily tasks, and then you know, and, but 
they're all bizarre to us because it's this culture and society that is so far away from our own. And then in the second half of the book, the main character rebels and tries to throw off their role that society's shown them. Um, And the coolest thing for me is that it is a coming of age story for Tanar, like I mentioned, but it's coming of age in that she rejects what she's been given in her life Mm -hmm. and then finds what's right for her. Whereas usually a coming of age story is like, Oh, I'm, becoming the adult that I was yeah, always uh-huh. taught to be and like these becoming are my mentors. A lady, and, yeah, if exactly. it's about a woman, yeah. And and about a lot of men too. Like they tend to go through pretty traditional phases of like, now I'm learning and now I'm physically training and like now I'm a knight. I've become me. But that's okay. what their entire setup was yeah, meant to very, be. Very like written um, in stone. Especially with fantasy books. I'm mm-hmm. I'm just saying I'm No, I know what you mean. Um yeah, so that really, really struck me, mm-hmm. uh, reading it as, as a grown-up, semi-grown-up, um, because as a kid, I Grace loved... Grace is about to turn 30. Oh, I turned 30 in like three weeks. Um, as a kid, like I said, thought this book was so cool, and it made me, you know, it was very thrilling, and it made me very excited, mm-hmm. but I didn't pick up on these subtler themes, and that leads into something larger, which is whether this is a children's book or not. So on the back cover, I noticed that it says cover illustration 2001 by Rebecca Goy, cover design by Deborah Spetsios. (laughs) (laughs) And then it says, objection, ages 10 to 14. Which is yeah, that's strange that they. I hate when books put that. No, on the back cover. yeah, it's. Garbage. I know that it's. I know that it's for parents, so they could look at it and be like, "Okay, this isn't gonna have like smut in it. I can give it to my kids." But yeah. <laughs> there's a wizard, but is it a sexy wizard? Yeah. <laughs> um, spoiler alert: Yes, get it's a sexy wizard. <laughs> Grace is imagining him to be one at least. Um. So, yeah, I I mean, ostensibly it's for children, but I, you know, really could enjoy it as an adult book. It's it's thin, but and in this iteration, it looks like a book for children. Um, But I thought it was very enjoyable as an adult's book, uh, just especially because of the themes that it deals with. And I don't know, it did it did feel very adult to me. Yeah, the most striking thing for me that. makes this more of an adult book, I guess I would say. Although, I don't want to label it at all. I do think this is a book for everyone. All ages. Adults um, and children love it, so. <laughs> the Happy World of Atuan. <laughs> Sorry, unless you know what we're referencing. <laughs> we just sound insane. That sounds silly. Um, nothing is simple. Like, there's no straightforward good and evil there isn't really a clear understanding of what it means to be religious or be spiritual. Um, the politics and religion of the society are all tangled up in one another. Um, Tanar actually comes into herself by exploring the darkness within her. Um, and just like these themes of death and decay and eternity and just accepting that you are nothing yeah, in the exactly. face of all of this. But it's very and dark. Then also, but like, then the she harmony becomes, that. yeah, but then she gets beyond that mm-hmm. into like the beauty. But that's what her religion is all about is the bad right. stuff. Right. Her religion is, it's shaming um, 
I, I guess I, I don't know. know. I think it's just say. more about death and darkness and emptiness. Like that's her job. I don't I don't know if it's shaming necessarily. <laughs> well, I yeah, it doesn't actively shame because it doesn't even acknowledge the potential or for like the vitality of any humanity. Kind of, well, that's the thing. Like there are so many moments after she escapes when she's experiencing joy and she's really doesn't even know what to call it yeah um and then she is afraid of her own freedom there's a few quotes from the end of the book which was when i started just copying things down because for one Le Guin's writing is really um masterful and it's true gorgeous throughout the entire book but when she's describing blackness um you know, cold stone, like wet felt over like, open eyes. And I had to stop and think about it. And I was just yeah. like, that is what total blackness feels like, like just the absence of light and you have your eyes open and it feels like there's something heavy across your eyes. She's really good too at doing the sort of, I'm describing water to an alien sort of approach. I like your, your voice of the author there. <laughs> After Tanara leaves, I write young adult <laughs> fantasy novels that will become heritage. But they're classics. not young adult; they're for everyone. For everyone. Um, after she leaves the temple, and she like she's never seen the sea. She doesn't understand. Oh, okay, yeah, I know um, what you mean. What so many different little things in the world around her mean. Um, and Le Guin, I think, does a really good job of depicting that fr- through the eyes of someone who is experiencing it for the very first time. For sure. Um, because that's, you know, that's like the famous old exercise. Like, how do you describe water to an alien? What do you say? It's wet. That doesn't mean anything to them. These kinds of things. Grace was an English major. <laughs> no, it's not something we did as English majors. In college. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Go to Whitman, kids. <laughs> this is what you get. Um, no, I, I'm thinking more of as a child, like when you're in an English class. You're like, this is what goes down. Maybe this is just me. So there are a few passages at the end of the book after Tanara has escaped. And she's really, like I said, because then because she is the narrator and everything that we experience is what she's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time that we get these fuller, more glorious, life-affirming descriptions of the world around her. Okay, so the first one that I really loved was just her moment of reflection of who Ged is and what he means and what he represents. He was one whose power was akin to and as strong as the old powers of the earth, one who talked with dragons and held off earthquakes with his word. And there he lay asleep on the dirt with a little thistle growing by his hand. It was very strange. Living, being in the world was a much greater and stranger thing than she had ever dreamed. That made me cry. It's an amazing it. line, yeah. Um, and it, it just, I think it really speaks to Le Guin's appreciation of natural beauty and nature's power um, and combining human human bodies with uh, something like a small thistle, like which a is natural also environment, appreciating yeah. and describing in detail. And like she's, Tanara is describing every plant around them as they go through this short journey to the ocean um, because it's also new to her and also exciting. And we'll talk more about this during pretend food, but she also talks much more about everything that they eat and um, 
just, uh, yeah, f- the foods available to her during that period. Then she Grace is excited for pretend foods. I am. Um, well, that was a heavy <laughs> <laughs> pretend foods. I'm very hungry. <laughs> so pretend me foods so. is actually probably going to be a little out, little out of control. A little uh, PG-13. Do, do, do you need a snack <laughs> to oh, no, okay. stem the flow? No, food okay. lust. <laughs> okay, so I guess I'm like totally rambling now, but all this is to say is I love LeQuinn's writing so much, and I'm so happy that we covered this book because I, as Madeline can attest, I have been super annoying for the last few weeks. I read this a few weeks ago, and pretty much every day I've been like, have you finished those errands? <laughs> have you started the book? Have you started the book? Have you started the book? And Madeline, understandably, has been like, I have a lot going on, and I've been like, but... Have you started the book? And it's just because I was so excited after I read it. Um, and I'm happy that we're celebrating it. Yes. Tying it all back together. Shall we do the segment <laughs> where we talk about... Um, so, I mean, I guess you just kind of did talk about your attachment to it from a young age. Right, yeah. I want to talk about yours since you have experience with Earthsea. Well, I actually have kind of a bummer of a story. Oh, okay. <laughs> Put on your bummer caps. High school <laughs> days. Oh, it's no. all bad, pretty much. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I think I read it like over the summer. We had a choice between three books that we could read, and this was the only fantasy ones. The other ones were like ones that I did not want to read. And I enjoyed... Classics. Yeah, that, but like... John Steinbeck classics and I was just like no thank you (laughs) no it's awesome that this one was an option it was that it was the Wizards of Earthsea was an option yeah yeah though my English teacher was the head of the drama program so she was um cool I liked her um (laughs) no she was like really nice to me everyone else was really mean to me including some of my teachers so (laughs) No, I just like that uh, comment that like, well, she was the head of drama program, so she was cool. Because right, I know a yeah. lot of, I've had teachers uh, like yeah. that who were definitely not cool. I know, I know. Um, anyways, and, and she, so she let it, she said we could do that. And only like two other people in the class chose this. Everyone else chose the lame books. So we were talking about them in groups and the two people in my group, one of them was a boy that I had a crush on and he right away started talking about how dumb the book was and I agreed with him because I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to stand up for my book or want to, um, which sucks, which sucks. I know that everyone goes through, well, many people go through stages like that. But anyways, so I was really happy to reconnect with this world because I'd totally forgotten because it became like a shameful memory that I just buried Mm -hmm. that like I really enjoyed this thing. And then due to peer pressure, I told other people I didn't like this thing because I wanted them to think I was cool. And, you know, so it's good that this reading this has helped me sort of come full circle on that. And I want to read Wizard of Sea again now because I want to actually enjoy it. And hear more about Ged. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that story. Mm. Those are like the dark moments that you think on when you can't sleep at night. And you're just like, oh. Uh, I usually fall asleep right away. Well, you you sleep very well, <laughs> I know. I'm, we've probably <laughs> hit on this before. But yeah. 
I'm a terrible sleeper and Madeline is an amazing sleeper and it will remain like that until we die. Probably me 20 years earlier. Oh my gosh. I never Too dark. Sleep. Too dark. Grace, bring it back. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Coming off a... Death. Off a period of not enough Zs. Um, she needs to get some Aussies. Oh, that was so bad. <laughs> well... Okay, commenting on the fact that this was included as one of the potential summer read classics, I think that that's um, telling just on how significant Ursula K. Le Guin's impact has been. Um, And one of the reasons I was saying so vehemently that I feel this book is for everyone, which I do, um, is that she herself has always been a bit frustrated with being put into the children's literature camp with a lot of her works. Um, Because I think everything that she writes is that she writes everything everything she she writes good. good. (laughs) Like Grace, like a lot. (laughs) Everything she writes is nuanced and groundbreaking and so glorious I just don't know how else to describe it I mean it's yeah this book made me cry a lot (laughs) at different moments um it really resonated with me and I did not have that experience with it as a child you know I'm living proof that like this is maybe even better for adults than it is for children um I think it's also just an example of how another you know our podcast is a testament to this but of how valuable it is to Mm -hmm. go back and read books yeah. that you loved or had an effect on you as a child mm-hmm. because it's such a rewarding feeling that you get from them and you can really rediscover things you know that existed in those little worlds mm-hmm. in your mind um so yeah and i think to have a book that's about a young girl who at the same time has a lot of power and is also a prisoner um really brings out these interesting sides in your own mind mm-hmm. just like the it's it's horrifying when Arha sentences the three prisoners to death by starvation and she does it in that moment because she can't bring herself to have them actually murdered yeah um and then she dreams about their suffering then they haunt her yeah she isn't that when she faints when she's yeah. leaving the under tomb and then she takes ill yeah um, she takes ill she does take ill uh yeah, and takes to her bed, um, which brings up... She is stricken a bed. Thinking about her room makes me think of the crazy little peepholes into the labyrinth. That was a that was so creepy. Mad crazy. Um, that there are these little hidden eye holes yeah, around everywhere. the everywhere. temple. That no one knows that about. Let you peek into the labyrinth. Um, yeah, and it's so cool that there's this concept that she lives in this world... Um, filled with other women, like the other younger girls and the other priestesses, but only she knows so many of these, of the secrets. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really taps into my own hidden desire to be like in a video game or in a Nancy (laughs) Drew world where there are puzzles and peoples and magical things just out of reach. Uh You need to need to get that first key or that map or whatever is going to set you off on your quest. It is really cool. 
and to for her to be able to just go deeper and deeper into the labyrinths but truly know them and remember them and she mm-hmm. has like a photographic memory for it yeah which makes her also think oh well it's because i'm the reincarnated spirit of right. the last yeah. eaten uh-huh. one so of so course it affirms I that for her um and there is at the same time a true sense of uh, not just mysticism, but spirituality throughout the book, and the fact that the nameless ones do destroy the underdoom, the labyrinth. Yeah, very much. There's most definitely existence. an evil force yeah. there. Yeah, and we already know that it is a supernatural world because Ged is a magician. Yeah, he is a wizard. Um, and there is uh, just a. I I always like it when we talk about what magic means in different books that we discuss because I think it's super cool to think about how different writers approach pretend like just pretend powers if you've read Aragon um Mm. he pretty much lifted his magic system (laughs) like straight from Ursula K. Le Guin's yeah I actually (laughs) we there's a lot we don't like about Aragon we probably maybe we have some listeners do like a hate cover is I mean, we ha- we don't have any episodes we've done of books that we didn't like, you know? That's, that could be interesting. Well, yeah. Why don't you let us know, listeners, if you feel strongly one way or the other? Better gone. Yeah, just let us know. Um, so this magic is the, the power of the true name, um, which is used in folklore uh, and goes way back, way back. But <laughs> almost as old as I am. <laughs> as old as I am. I really Very like. Good, yeah. <laughs> I really like Liquid's approach. Is there a moment that you thought of when Tanar remembers her name from a movie? It's a cartoon. Fantasy. Yes. Give me a second here. (laughs) No, I'm being annoying. Um, Well, all I thought of, because we were just quoting Lord of the Rings, is when Gandalf is waking up. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, he meets Aragorn um, Mm -hmm. and Legolas and Gimli in the forest, and he's like, Gandalf. He doesn't recognize Gandalf. That was my name. (laughs) <laughs> That's what yeah. it made me think No, of, yeah. totally. Um, there are so many incredible moments like that because it's about the hero discovering their true identity or their past self. What are, what are you talking about? A Shihiro in Spirited Away. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because yeah. in both instances, they're transformed and made safe by... For, for the uninitiated, that's a Studio Ghibli Miyazaki film. And if you are uninitiated and you're listening to this... I'm excited for you yeah, to experience too. those films. So get on it. Actually, um, one of Ursula K. Le Guin's books was adapted into a Ghibli movie, but she wanted Miyazaki to do it and he didn't. It was, um, oh, I can't remember the details. She didn't like it. Oh, okay. Um, and she, she felt like it wasn't a good adaptation. She, she said it was a fine movie, but it wasn't but like yeah, true it wasn't to what the she spirit of her. Okay. She actually had, um, turned down their request before for them to make one of her movies into one of her books into a film. Um, but I think she saw Totoro mm. and changed her mind okay. 
but then she was disappointed. Anyway, short, confusing, bummer story that I don't have all the details about. Yay. Hope you still had your bummer caps Favorite on kind. when we did the high school. Get them back out, put them back on. <laughs> Little high school recounting. Um, anyway, I love those moments. Uh, they really ring true to me. And I also, this book, we should almost have a segment of like, I think we did have a segment about like other fantasy books this makes you think of. Um, but not only that, other fantasy books we've done. I thought mm-hmm. a lot about um, the Folk Keeper and Corinna yeah. in mm-hmm. the caves. For only sure. for her, that was a much more positive experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That helped her discover herself rather than something that she had to get away from. So, but a lot of the like, I don't know. It was but both are the main characters regaining identities that were stolen from them. Yeah, but yes, but Corinna's is she uses the dark to ex- to find her right. identity in a positive way. Yeah, and Tanar, the whole thing is like she is not meant to be in the dark. Right. Mm-hmm. No matter how much she's told by Castle and Thar that she that's her domain. Um, and Ged has this great line at the end where he says that she was used as a vessel of evil, but she's actually meant to be filled with light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so this good. is pretty cool that I just realized after I finished the book is that Kossel, she gets cursed and then gets eaten by the nameless yeah, ones. I, okay, I like, never that finished. curse follows through on her. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. I never really finished what I was saying about the plot being bizarre, but another reason why it's strange is that there's no, like, fight at the end mm-hmm. there's no showdown yeah everything just gets um, swallowed up there's a very disturbing moment where tanar well at that point arha um screams at castle in front of a group of other priestesses yeah basically damning herself at that point because castle can't allow her to insubordinate Be her so impudent um and then also the uh, really upsetting visual of castle clawing at the pretend grave where Tanara said that she had buried Ged, mm-hmm. or that Man- Manon had buried Ged. Um, but all they do is leave the tombs. I mean, probably the biggest fight moment is that Manon tries to shove Ged into the pit, and instead Manon gets thrown into the pit. The pit, by the way, that's really frightening i really didn't like that oh no especially (laughs) talking about how incredibly thin the ledge was like you had to press your face to the wall and not put weight on your heels or you would fall in it's some spirit temple stuff yeah yeah yeah. um i can't yeah i can't exaggerate just how creepy and um suffocating the uh, undertomb and the labyrinth feel at different times, yes. even though Tanara is very comfortable there. Um, I was not. And I'm also uh, wildly claustrophobic. Yeah, and there were a very few moments that I really struggled with yeah. <laughs> getting through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's no fight. Castle uh, is just crushed to death. I actually, uh, yeah, <laughs> I forgot about the end of, I forgot what happens at the end of the book, and I was expecting her or some kind of force from the temple to show up as they escape, and instead they have this lovely, it's a beautiful journey onwards. Um, yeah, just you know, conversation-filled little hike. And I thought that that was 
really cool too and and different from a narrative structural yeah. viewpoint because usually the story ends when they escape you don't get the journey back and we got a lot of the journey exactly. back which was a really great last leg of the story i really appreciated yeah. it and i know that um i think more from the movies than the books but a lot of people get irritated by the ending of return of the king um with all the journeying home mm-hmm. and like going on to your next thing but well madeline just looked kind of exhausted when he said that um, but I always really appreciate it. No, and, that's what I was being exhausted and this with is the only criticism. The, oh, I love okay. the end of awesome. Return of the King. Yeah. And this and this is only the second book in a series, and yeah. Tanar actually has a whole other book. That's I want all the epilogues. Never end. Nothing ever ends. <laughs> hundred <laughs> years forever. <laughs> I said that I wouldn't talk about the other books in the series, but there's actually a whole other one that's just about Tanar. Um, and is about her life, and it's well. You're doing we. It's great. Okay, just say that it's very Harvest Moon esque. <gasps> I don't know. Why we're having so much video game discussion in this episode. I love Harvest. Moon. I think it's because this book makes me want to be in a pretend world so badly. Um, huh. and that's how I feel about the video games that we brought up. Anyway, you know, living in Harvest Moon would be kind of mundane. No, I don't want to live in Harvest Moon. <laughs> I thought you might like to, but for a little while until the next one comes out. Until I've done all the holidays. <laughs> oh, you're going to play one year and then quit? <laughs> yeah, I'm not as Grace big is a, a fan. really bad Harvest Moon player. She, she quits easy. <laughs> I think in the new game we made, I only played for like two seasons. Two seasons. Yeah, I mean, my eggplants hadn't even finished growing. <laughs> Eggplants okay, do take a while Lots to of grow. niche conversations <laughs> in this episode. Um, sorry, guys. Back to the actual book. Should we do pretend foods now? I'm hungry. We're <laughs> hungry. Let's talk about some fantasy <laughs> do, 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 do. It kind of ruins the song when you sing <laughs> no, Here's just, a different tune that I'm, I'm singing. <laughs> We would never be able to have a band together. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. I'm going to pick that baton up and go in a different direction. All right. Pretend food. So I, like I said, I read this book a few weeks ago. So the And I reread like the ending of it before today. So the beginning's a little more hazy in my mind. But we have a lot of very realistic food in this book. It's one a lot of, of those. boring that, food at yeah, the temple. Exactly. It's like bean bread and... Apples, like goat milk, apples. Um, I remember they I list love some the, onions. I love the apple eating scene. Actually, that's oh, one that of my great. favorite yeah. eating moments because Pentha, I'm going to pronounce her name, um, who is the only other younger priestess that Arha ever mentions that we get to experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, she comes to you, try to comfort her, and give her some food at the end of her illness mm-hmm. after she sentences the soldiers to or the prisoners to death. Um, and Pentha brings a bag of apples that are intended for Arha, um, but 
talks instead about how much she loves eating and she feels like they never give her enough food and she wishes she were a cook instead of having to work in the uh, God King's service in his temple. And it sounds like they don't feed them very no, much. because like they keep them really Tenar, emaciated. who is the highest ranking priestess, doesn't get enough food that she can even give some to get without starving herself. Yeah, and if that's the level of food she's getting, she's not getting enough food. And I think part of it is that, you know, the picture we get of the kingdom is like it's it's at war. It's struggling in a few different ways. Mm-hmm. Like their their food is clearly being rationed. But they make all their own food there. I know. Yeah. Um, it's that's the thing. When I read books where people don't get enough food, I get very get anxious. <laughs> I ate a lot today. Um, I didn't eat enough. I'm so hungry. I would eat, gladly munch on that bag of apples right now. And it's during that conversation that. Pentha first expresses her own um, disbelief. Yeah, and like revolutionary ideas. And Tanar at first is horrified and falls into that role that she's been trained to be in, which is like, how dare you, unbeliever? Like, I'll send you to work in the undertombs. Um, but uh, then she ruminates over these ideas and starts to think that, um, yeah, maybe there might be something to them. And it's, I think she's helped along by Kossel being so awful and so clearly like power hungry um, and not actually seeming like she's serving a larger power, but she's just serving herself. Yeah. Yeah. And helps her wake up. Um, but the thing about the food in the book is that, again, after Tanara leaves, it takes on a whole new joyous Because she starts and to be happy like, to get food oh, that's so delightful instead of just like sustenance oriented food. Yeah. yeah. I, I love the way Le Guin's writing changes after she's free. Um, there's this comment that they have bread that's hard and sour, but very good to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just said, like, munch away at it. <laughs> I love sourdough, and especially eat- like crispy sourdough. Oh, that oh sounds gosh. good. Ah. And they eat nuts, um, walnuts, walnuts and then yeah. smooth nuts that Tanar doesn't know the name of. Um, and only has the... Uh, Maybe they're hazelnuts. So it's it's Kargish. And what's the other language? The other language is just the common tongue, right? Because the Kargish remember. lands actually have a different language. Um, and this also sets them, I think, sets them in a light to be like a little bit less advanced than the rest of the world okay like they're still using you have to say that again i will yeah versus the lands of the archipelago i guess is okay all i'm saying um but yeah they have wild nuts um they (laughs) tanar asks if ged can call a rabbit for them and then he's like but how do you really feel about skinning a butchering and cooking a rabbit that I just called by its true name. Yeah. Do you think that's right? That would be a violation. (laughs) Then she's like, oh, never mind. Okay, but can you just call it so I can see the bunny? Yeah, so she gets to see the bunny. (laughs) And then I loved, this is another like alien singing water uh, moment, the mussels and oysters. Yes, I loved how she described mussels to, um, you know, the point of view of someone yeah well but like to the point of view of someone who's never like experienced those before because they're weird stuff and she said they were wet hideous things like purple rocks and orange lips yeah but they did so good and she describes the way that even though she's horrified and she won't eat them ged um swallows everything whole and uses the sea the sea water as As a sauce sauce. yeah Yeah. i was like oh my 
God. I want an oyster right now. Madeline can't eat oysters. They make her sick. They hurt my thumb. Uh, yeah, but that was just another moment of joyous discovery outside of the temple that yeah. I really appreciated. I think that's it for Pretend Food. Okay. I'm yeah. closing up my little magical, never-ending food Grace wallet. Grace made a very particular <laughs> motion with her hand. The magical food wallet, yeah. a la the one from... Um, Gurgi. Yeah, Gurgi's wallet. <laughs> I actually, there were a lot of moments that I did think about the Black Cauldron while we were reading this, mm. and I think of Lloyd Alexander and Ursula K. Le Guin in some similar ways, how they both thought that they're, and a lot of readers think that their books are really for all ages, but okay. they were put so squarely in the YA fantasy or, or, mm-hmm. um, or sci-fi genre, mm-hmm. um, which again is all really just all about marketing. You yeah. can't just say like, oh, it's a great book. Good for everyone. Read it all Check humans out. for you. <laughs> and it's just harder to find for people in the first place too. So I don't know. I think when I was a kid, I saw Ursula K. Le Guin almost as a scary figure. Like she's oh, she's so renowned, like her books will be too advanced for me. Um, so I guess it also works in the opposite way. What I just said totally contradicted myself, but... Yeah, I don't know what she's talking about, people. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember feeling very fancy and mature when okay. I would read any Le Guin books. Um, and yeah, it's just, this was so much more enjoyable than I remembered too. Um, I think I remembered it as being a little bit more of a chore to read. Well, I was thinking that while I was reading it. I was like, if I read this as a kid, it would be kind of hard to follow at parts, especially when it gets like deep about the history and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. All right. Badass lady meter. Badass. Shooting finger guns. Shoot. There are so many women in this book. It is exclusively populated by women except for Manon and Ged. And the God King is mentioned, but he's not actually in the book. We didn't get any page turning sounds. Oh, get it in there. Get it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this may be a little too excited. About that. <laughs> yeah, um, page but obviously the baddest lady of the book is Tanar, um, also known as... <coughs> oh, my God. <coughs> I'm getting just over dying. an illness. Um, just obviously, the baddest of the book is Tanar, Arha, the eaten one. She goes by many names, but she's still a badass. In every iteration. In every way. Even when she's being haughty and cruel, um, she is just like holding court over those around her. And she has the courage to stand up to much older women who do everything in their powers to make her feel that she's beholden to them and that she needs to obey them. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. I mean, Castle sets her up to just be a sycophant. And Arha will not do it. No, thank you. And I love how she is, she tells herself not to be afraid and that the underground domain is her kingdom. Yeah. And through that, she's able to basically just talk herself out of what she sees as childish fears, but like are pretty realistic because if you get lost down there, you die. Yeah, that's it. You die a horrible, lonely, hungry, hungry death. Grace is so hungry. I'm so hungry. Um, And uh, yeah, she, she makes it, out of a cult, she chooses freedom. Ged has to help her, but I think that the amount of helping he needs to do to get her out of there is 
surprisingly minimal. Well, and he also talks a lot. Like, it's not just implicit. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about how important she is as a partner to him getting out of there. He's not getting out of there without her. Like, just her presence and power is so important. It doesn't feel like, oh, here comes the um, manly wizard to save the little girl. She saves them both. Um, And it's really... Even though he's so much more powerful than her. because Yeah, he's like this super magic-y wizard type guy um and then he helps her see that she doesn't deserve to be damned to eternal isolation for the murders that she's committed yeah she really Um, wants and that's when he comments on her being a vessel for light not for evil yes um and tanar is uh just so tenacious i really like her what do you think what would you rate tanar i would rate her a luscious golden apple growing on a tree out of a dark crevice in the Mm. ground shining up into the light away from death (laughs) yes um i would rate her a million sword protectors that stop her head from being cut off in what is surely the most alarming priestess initiation ceremony i've ever experienced secondhand I've experienced much more alarming ones first. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yes. I think that covers everything for this week. Um, So we'll do a quick little social media request. Get in touch with us and follow us on Twitter. Hit us up, hit us up. And on Instagram. On these platforms instagram we're dragon babies podcast twitter we are dragon babies pod because dragon babies podcast was too long and dragon babies is taken by some weird twitter user <laughs> now we're maligning individual <laughs> twitter users no they're private so i can't see anything or contact uh, them or anything i just so wish, wish we could have had that handled but it's fine i'll buy it from you we our website no we is, won't <laughs> no we absolutely won't our production costs are very low <laughs> And we want to keep them that way. Dragonmabiespodcast.com is our website. Check out the cover of our book. We'll put that up there. I'm also going to put up links to some interviews with Margaret Atwood and Ursula K. Le Guin about their Maybe friendship. we'll put up a pronunciation guide telling us we got it wrong. Yeah, maybe we'll put up a little comment like, sorry, we're goofballs. Um, yeah, check all that out on our website along with media from all our other episodes. Yes. So, and we'd love to hear from you. So, comment on any would. of those platforms. Yeah, let us know. Let us know what you think. Or leave us a review, please, on Apple Podcasts. On the iTunes Store, you can. Apple Podcasts. Read us. <laughs> we keep saying on iTunes, but it technically is Apple Podcasts. So, that's why I'm just saying it over and just over again. Just find a text box and put some find stuff us in on it. iTunes. Yeah. We're, we're there. About how you feel. Yeah, true. It can be like stream of consciousness. Write us a review in the style of one of the authors we've covered. That would be both a writing exercise for you and an endless, like, take to our graves delight for us. It would be so enjoyable. And Madeline's basically <laughs> just sleeping on her mic at this point. So I think I will say I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>